Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. And for the next year, I'll be teaching entrepreneurship from Bin University in Hanoi, Vietnam. Today, please welcome our guest, Lou Ferrante, author of the new book, Borgata, Rise of the Empire, A History of the American Mafia, and star of the hit show, Discovery Channel series, Inside the Gangster Code. He also wrote Unlock the Life and Crimes of Mafia Leader, Mob Rules, and What the Mafia Can Teach the Legitimate Businessman, and an international bestseller translated into 20 languages, including Vietnamese, and Tough Guy, a memoir by Louis Ferrante as well, and The Three-Pound Crystal Ball, a theory about uh, dreaming uh, that the brain has been praised by scientists. So let's ask our, uh, let me ask our first question. Uh, let's start off by you giving us your professional history from getting involved in your former pro- profession to transitioning to the other side of being a writer and also hosting TV shows. Yeah, hi, first of all, uh, I wanna thank you for, for inviting me on, Mark, uh, and my sincerest apologies that the camera is not working. Uh, I'm at a friend's house who's actually an ex-gangster from the Lucchese family, and uh, we're not the most tech-savvy people. So we've been banging our heads together and can't figure out how to get the camera going. We usually have secretaries for this stuff, but not today. Um, So anyway, thanks for bringing me on. Uh, My background, uh, I was raised and born and raised in Queens, started hijacking trucks when I was a kid, Um, went from truck hijackings to bigger heists, eventually started hitting army cars, and uh, got in with the with the Gambino crime family in New York. I rose up pretty quick. I had my own crew. Um, we planned some of the biggest heists in history. Uh, that's slowly um, coming out. Some of them now, uh, the ones that we did that we weren't charged with, have now beginning to surface. But I was charged with a lot of crimes back in the early '90s, the mid '90s. Uh, I faced life in prison. Um, I fought my cases. I had some of the best attorneys that money could buy. William Kunstler, Barry Slotnick, uh, briefly had Bruce Cutler. And uh, after seven in, uh, hiring and firing seven attorneys, I studied law, represented myself. Uh, I was able to cop out to 13 years. My co-defendants did along with me. Uh, none of us snitched. And I was able to get out after I reversed one of my cases from prison in eight and a half years. Uh, so I, I ducked the life sentence. And while I was in there, I decided to change my life around. I read books uh, for the first time in my life. I had never read a book cover to cover before. And once I did, I fell in love with reading. And I found something in the strangest place, prison, that I would never have found it outside. I would would have never found. And I love books. I continue to read. uh, And the latest book I'm coming out with now is Borgata, Rise of Empire. And I just had a really glowing review from Publishers Weekly. Uh, They praised the book. Not a single... um, not a single insult. It was just complete praises, which which was very flattering. Uh, but not to sound uh, immodest, but I was I was 
really, really, really happy with it. Uh, and I hope the book uh, gets around the world. The UK is publishing it uh, from Orion, uh, the Orion Publishing Group, uh, which is uh, uh, within the Hachette umbrella. And in the United States, it's being published by Simon & Schuster. Well, anybody who reads this book will see the amount of research that you've done uh, to give this uh, probably maybe the best history anybody's ever written about the mafia from beginning to uh, current. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. So uh, why did you become an author and a documentarian host? And what, what do you like and find challenging about both of these? The author part is was sort of, I was, I guess, trapped into it by, by God Almighty. I am sitting in a prison cell. I, wanna, I wanted to do something more with my life and didn't know what to do, so I began reading, and I became an avid reader, and there's not much you could do in prison. You can't plan a heist, so where, what am I going to do with my time? Uh, I started to, at some point or another, I said to myself, I could write, and I have, I have something I want to say. I wrote a novel at first. It took me several years to write. I wrote it in my prison cell. And uh, it was the first sort of like, um, I guess the first thing I had ever written in my life. So it was a test. It was a learning experience. And the way I learned how to write, by the way, is through reading the, the masters of 19th, uh, 18th, 19th, mostly 19th century fiction, um, Russian novelists, English novelists, French novelists, um, and American. And I dissect each and every book that I read and and try to feel how the author was feeling and, and try to get inside their brains and understand how they would develop a plot, how they would introduce a character. I would take notes, meticulous notes at the margins. And that's how I learned to write. And, then, and at some point or another, I went to a team meeting before I left prison. And they said, what are you going to do with yourself when you get out? And I'll you know, construction, where, where are you going into? What, what, what phony story are you going to tell us while you go back to crime? That's basically what they feel. And, and in so many words, what they said. And I said, no, I'm, I'm for real. I'm going to become an international best-selling author. And they were absolutely hysterical at the team meeting. And, uh, and lo and behold, years later, that's exactly what I became. Yeah, and congratulations. And that's how we met uh, through your leadership book on the mob the first time I interviewed you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And as far as the television is concerned, that morphed, uh, that evolved from the uh, from the writing. I was on book tour in England, and I was doing a lot of. I would do the book tour. Actually, morphed into a whole uh, traveling program to promote literacy throughout the United Kingdom. And I would be called time and again to do these um, to do these things where I would go inside prisons in England or work with the Prince's Trust to, got to, to try to get people underprivileged people to read. And at one point or another, I got a phone call, and it was from Downing Street, number 10 Downing Street. At the time, Gordon Brown was the prime minister, and the, uh, the prime minister was, was, uh, was giving me an award for my promotion of literacy in the United Kingdom. So I was given a beautiful award at number 10. And, uh, and then from there, I did a number of BBC interviews, Sky News, and some production company in England contacted me and said, would you like to do television? I said, sure, why not? Let's do it. And, you know, with the same cockiness that I once had when I said we could stick up an armored car or rob an armored car depot or, you know, no, no heist was too big. Um, that same sort of cockiness I was able to apply, but in a different way. It wasn't, it wasn't 
cockiness born of ignorance anymore. It was it was sort of cockiness born of confidence. I felt like I had an education. There's nothing that you know I haven't studied or read or understood or experienced for the most part um, that should put me you know at the top of humanity's sort of circle of people that could, could accomplish things. And I felt like, why can't I? And so I, we, we jumped right into a television show uh, and we did Gangster Code. It, it had it, it, it phenomenal ratings throughout the world. It continues to air today as reruns throughout the globe. Every single week or two, I get emails from around the world, whichever country it's airing. Um, and I was awarded, uh, I was shortlisted rather, for, I wish I won the award, but I was shortlisted for a Grierson Award in the United Kingdom, which is considered the highest highest documentary award. Uh, and I was with, I think, Sir David Attenborough. It was either Sir Richard or Sir yeah. David. I believe it, it was Sir David. It, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, was shortlisted with me. And so that was a really, really, uh, you know, it was, I, I was flattered. It was a, I felt like there was a proud achievement to walk down the red carpet. Uh, and I hope to go back to that award and do another show soon. Um, now that the books are done, the trilogy, which took me seven years to write, I'm hoping to jump back into some television and get another show going. Um, before we get into the book, one time when you and I were speaking, I asked if there was ever a show or a movie that came close to the mafia, how the mafia operates. You said The Sopranos. Is is that still true? And and please tell us why. It is true. And um, I'll tell you how I came around to The Sopranos first and then explain to you why it still holds true. When I was in prison, The Sopranos were out. Each season was playing out while I was in jail. And the Italians used to come by my cell, and I would be reading um, a history of the world, a biography of a president or some some world figure, uh, prime minister, uh, whoever it might have been, Gandhi. uh, And I would be reading in my cell, and they'd say, hey, Lou, the Sopranos are on. Come on, let's go to the television room. And I'd say, yeah, you know, why don't you get away from that shit and pick up a book? Who wants to watch that? That's how we ended up in here. You know, I don't want to glorify it. And they'd say, no, no, I'm telling you, it's really good. It's like us. They they nailed us. And I'd say, nah, I don't want to watch that crap. So I let it go all those years, never watched it. And then I came home from prison. And Lorraine Bracco, who was the psychiatrist in The Sopranos, she played Dr. Melfi, she bought the movie option for my first book, Unlocked, uh, also named Tough Guy in the U.K., and it's basically a memoir of my, my uh, street uh, life on the street and my prison years. And every, every crime I talk about in the memoir was something I was either charged with or investigated for. I wanted to make sure that everybody knew this was, this was real stuff. This isn't something I'm making up. It's all FBI records behind it. Um, so the memoir was authentic. And Lorraine Bracco said, hey, I want to make this a movie. So she optioned it. And I said, son of a gun, I never watched The Sopranos. You know, now I'm going to meet one of the starring actresses from The Sopranos. So I, I said, let me let me watch a couple of episodes, get a feel for it before I meet her. And I started to watch it, and I will admit I got sucked in, and I ended up binging the whole series. Um, I, you know, I was, I'm walking around in my boxer shorts with coffee, watching episode after episode. You know, that's how I, mean, I found myself glued to television. And I will tell you now why I felt felt it was authentic. What they did was. First of all, they had to have great consultants that from the life, because what they did was they were not only able to replicate the crimes really, really well, but they really, really mirrored the, the home life. Tony Soprano and his wife and his children were the average mafia family I knew, the interactions with him and his family, and then how it would shift to 
his friend, you know, when he showed up at the, the pork store and then he would, the way he would dealt and deal with his friends and then shift back into a family man. These are changes that I witnessed every day with some of the biggest organized crime figures of the century. And, I, you know, I lived, don't forget, I was in and out of Peter Gotti's house, John Gotti's oldest brother, Peter. I was in and out of his house for the better part of six or seven years and, you know, almost every day. So I, you know, I knew the Gotti's intimately. Um, and, you know, th- you know, this is, you know, he captured Tony Soprano and the rest of the characters, captured that not only the authentic criminal criminal uh, um, part of the show and what they would do and how they would operate and how how the different crew operated and how they reported and put things on record with Tony Soprano and how sometimes they got into beef with other people, but also too, once again, the home life, which I felt like was a big aspect of what the Sopranos nailed. And I really appreciated that the way, the way the son and daughters are, they're a little bit clueless and, you know, the wife would deny that she's the wife of a mobster, but when she needed to pull that card out at school, she did. Yeah. I am. Yeah, it was the same type of thing I saw every day. So I felt like that was really, really done well. I may I may end up making a Sopranos of my own one day. I've discussed it already with a couple of people. Um, I played around with uh, uh, with a plot, uh, with a series plot, an arc. Um, so, you know, now that my trilogy is done and I'm done writing these three books, um, I, could, I could move on to television. So I may revisit that as well, besides documentaries. Um, do you have um, wife and children yourself now? No, I don't. I've been with a woman for close to 20 years. I met her when I came home from prison. Uh, I'm home since 2003, so I'm almost 20 years home. Uh, about a year after I came home, I met I met a beautiful woman. She's a good woman. Uh, she's extremely intelligent. She's a librarian, which um, a research librarian, which makes my life easier when I need to research something that I can't find. I push it off to her and say, hey, can you dig and find this for me while I continue looking somewhere else for something else? And a lot of times she'll, you know, she was really, really good with that. Um, why did you rate this book, especially when so many books have been written about the mafia's history? And why use the word Borgata, which I looked up, means working class? Uh, so basically why I wrote the book was uh, it came about in the artist circumstance. I was... Um, my book, Mob Rules, What the Mafia Can Teach a Legitimate Businessman, is an international bestseller translated into 20 languages, as you stated up, up front. And that book was uh, the German company, Axel Springer, was uh, contacted me, and they were impressed by the book. And they were having a retreat in Naples, uh, no, I'm sorry, uh, Agrigento, Sicily. And they invited me to the retreat, and they said, look, you know, we'll fly you in. Uh, you'll stay at the uh, uh, the uh, Hotel Athena, I think it was in Agrigento, um, and you know you'll have a ball with us, and you know come on over. So I flew into Sicily, uh, and they you know they really were great, uh, the, the Germans, and they had the uh, they were sensitive to uh, considerate enough to put me next to someone who spoke English fluently, and his name was George. He had introduced himself as George, as opposed to the Germans who spoke English fluently but as a second language. George was very fluent in English, could speak it. Um, actually, he was born in Austria, as, as, I'll, as I'll tell you, but he spoke English as good as I did, probably much better. Uh, and, and my, my jargon from Queens was not as good as his Queens English. Uh-huh. Uh, so anyway, we hit it off, yeah, and we hit it off, George and I, and we talked about history the entire night. And we went through the Middle Ages, the Reformation, the Renaissance, etc. And at some point or another, we were in the 20th century, and he said, I fled 
the Wehrmacht when they rolled into Austria. I had 16 shillings in my pocket and I went to, uh, to England. And I said, you fled the Holocaust? And he said, yes. And he lost his grandmothers in the Holocaust, but his mother and father were fortunately, uh, they, they were fortunate enough to escape. I said, you got to be kidding me. I'm sitting here next to, you know, pretty much a Holocaust survivor. You know, he, he stayed at the front when the, just as the Germans rolled in, the Nazis. And, um, and he said, I'd love to publish. At the end of the night, he said, I'd love to publish the next book. I said, well, well who the hell is this guy? Yeah, I had no idea who he was. Well, it, it turns out that he's Lord, he was Lord George Wiedenfeld, or Weidenfeld, uh, from England, one of the biggest publishers of the 20th century. And he had published some great books, such as The Double Helix by Crick and Watson, uh, ah. The Memoirs of De Gaulle, uh, Tito, Pope John Paul II, uh, Moshe Diane, um, Lyndon Johnson. Uh, just, just such a colorful career, an incredible, incredible contribution to the, to the world of literature he has made. Uh, so he got the contract done. He asked me to write a one volume of the mafia. I shied away from it at first. He kept insisting, along with his charming wife, Lady Annabelle, that I was equipped to do it and that I could bring stuff to the table that had never been done or, or read before. And they felt that my insights would be, would be sort of like the gem that would raise this above the rest of the histories. And the fact that I was unlike most mafia histories that are written by academics who have studied the mob, uh, you know, and, but who are writers first, um, I was a mobster first and a writer second. Um, so they felt that I could, I could contribute something that no one has ever, has ever done. So they convinced me. And then once I took the deal, believing it would be a one volume and would take me a year to write, uh, it morphed into a trilogy that took me seven years to write. Um, it was 550,000 words when I finished. Wow. Um, and then, um, yeah, incredible. So it was huge. And then someone took over for the, uh, in the, in the interim, Lord George had very sadly passed away. Uh, someone was running the, um, he was the executive publisher at uh, Orion slash Wiedenfeld and Nicholson. Uh, and he had moved on. And the woman who took over when she got, uh, you know, first look at my 550,000 page manuscript, she said, before I even read it, why don't we cut it down to somewhere around 300,000 words and cut it up into a trilogy? So I cut it up to, I cut it down to about 330,000 words, cut it up into a trilogy. And as it turned out, it was a perfect fit. Each volume, there was a perfect milestone, uh, just in the right places where I had, you know, had, I had already had like a book break you know, uh, not only a chapter break, but a book, you know, book one, book two, book three. So it was already like a ready-made trilogy, which made it a lot easier. Um, and I cut it up and, uh, you know, just uh, once again, I'm really happy. Um, I had a really glowing review from Publishers Weekly, which is the gold standard of reviews. Um, I'll share it with you if you'd like to share it with your, your, your readers and listeners. Um, and yes, yeah, been good. Why don't we, we can send that to them uh, because I'd like to hit a lot of the questions while we have you. Um, in the uh, so why did you write the the this um, history of the mafia? Why specifically did you write that? Yeah, so I, I I may have left that out. So Lord George was insisting that I should write a a history of the mafia. Lord George and Lady Annabelle, his wife, and I uh, once again you know, here I am in the middle of I'm in Sicily, and it's sort of like an offer I can't refuse. Here I am in the birthplace of the mafia overlooking the uh, the ruins in Sicily. 
and they're asking me to write a history of the mafia. You know, real, it's real awful. I couldn't refuse. And I still yet, I, I did try to refuse it. Um, I shied away from it at first. And what happened next was, um, I just thought it was, I just thought there wasn't, there was, there were so many out there and the mafia's origins, which I would have liked to have dissected and which I ended up dissecting. Uh, I discovered where the word mafia came from. I discovered where the entire organization evolved from. Um, I don't think anybody's ever done an equal job to me, um, to, to, to say, you know, quite modestly, uh, you know, that I've done. I put the time in. But at first, I did not think I was able to, I would be able to accomplish that. And my dear friend and, uh, and an attorney, Bruce Raymer, who's, who's been an attorney in Hollywood for probably about five decades, an incredible man. He's my goomba. I call him my goomba. He is my goomba. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in Germany and bumped into Lord George. Uh, shortly after we had met in Sicily and they were talking about mutual acquaintances. I, my name came up and George said, what's going on with the book? And Bruce stepped out and said, I'll give him a ring. And Bruce called me and that's how the deal was finalized uh, right in Germany by a happenstance encounter um, with Lord George and Bruce Raymer. Um, so, and then that's it. I said, let me get, let me get started on this. I knew I would have to lock myself in a room and basically accept another prison sentence for at least a year and it turned out to be seven years. So I actually did a second bid. My first bid was eight and a half years. My second bid was seven years. And it was writing this trilogy as I sat glued to a desk for seven years. But I did it. I pulled it off. I think when I was in prison, I learned how to not complain about isolation. You're stuck in a prison cell. You may as well make the best of it. I did that with this book deal. I'm stuck with this book contract. I have an opportunity to produce something and give it out to the world. It'll, it'll succeed me long after I'm gone. It'll be around. Let me go for it. And at that point, I just basically locked myself in and, and treated life as if I was back in a cell. And all I have to do is write this book and then I'll be paroled. So I'm paroled, Mark. You're the first guy I saw on my parole. Uh, I, and I, I appreciate that. We have a, a question from the audience. As a born and raised Jersey boy, a Black Friday sale usually involved things like TVs that fell off the truck. Did the New York mob families work with the Jersey mob families to move lost goods? Yes. Uh, not only did we work with some guys in Jersey, but I, when I was a kid, I brought some of my hijacked trucks to Jersey, which was risky because you have to go through tolls. So we did that sometimes with the guy tied up in the back, I regret to say. Yeah. Um, but we had a, we had, we had a, yeah, we had a drop off in Jersey. Um, one of, one of the uh, offense that we used to use um, and, you know, had a drop off in Jersey. So we would go there and sometimes, you know, we'd free the guy that we had taken in New York, free him in Jersey. Um, once again, I do regret to say that. Um, that's I've gone through a lot of heavy weight on my shoulders for those days. But yeah, we did work with Jersey. Whether bringing trucks there or bringing merchandise here, we did work close with, with a few guys in Jersey. Now, everybody, every mafia family in New York has a satellite crew in Jersey. You know, there's always Jersey's like, you know, right over, right, you know, right over the bridge or through the tunnel. So, I mean, how many people have moved from New York and said, I'm going to go buy a house in Jersey? That doesn't mean you leave the mafia behind or you leave your family behind. You're still an active member of whatever family you are in New York. And then basically what usually happens is the Jersey guy would start to build a crew in Jersey. And then that's how a lot of these crews evolved from the beginning. And they became powerful crews of their own. Now that the Cavacante family was its own mafia family in Jersey, that was sort of like, you know, they, they were like, probably like 
I think, if I'm not mistaken, the Sopranos were based on, modeled on them. But they were like, you know, a powerful, what we would consider a powerful crew. They weren't a big family. They were tight-knit. I don't know how they, you know, I've been out of the life for a while. I don't know what's left of them, you know, how they're existing today, what they're doing. But yes, to, to answer the question, yes, there was a lot of back and forth between Jersey um, and, uh, you know, as well as well as uh, Long Island. We were constantly in Long Island. That's how the mafia sort of expanded into Long Island. A lot of people moved out to Long Island. Um, you know, originally it was just the five boroughs and then moved into Nassau and Suffolk County, just as they did Jersey. So that's basically how, how the mafia spread. A lot of guys would, you know, they would elevate. There would be, you know, mobility. People want a bigger house. They want a little more land. And they move somewhere, and then they start their crew there. Um, in the preface to the book, you write how people not in the life wrote books that often members find to be inaccurate because they there are no records. How did you put together your book so guys from your former line of work would put their stamp of approval on it? I I basically first of all we in, when we would be reading in jail, you'd hear a lot of bullshit. That never happened. Who wrote this crap? You know, you'd hear that, a lot of that every time somebody picked up a mob book. And I did it myself. You know when you're reading something that rings true. You know, if you're if you're a real estate developer, let's say for 30 years, and then you're in a room with some guy who just started out who's buying his first little, you know, his first little piece of land or something, and he's trying to sound like he knows about real estate development and big, big, you know, projects and flipping strip malls and, you know, and on and on and bringing in electricity and gas and, and sewage. And you know if he's telling the truth or not. You know if this guy just, you know, is repeating stuff he might have heard or if he's done it himself. Well, it's the same with us. We know right away if it's true or not. And I felt like nobody ever, even if, even if it's a writer who's working with a mob guy, it's still that that mob that that mafia mind is still being filtered through that academic's brain or that scholarly brain, and it's not you're not getting you know the firsthand authentic account. And so I I did feel that I could bring something to the table as far as what's real and what's not. So I went through a lot of these stories and I was able to immediately dissect stories that were definitely fabricated somewhere down the line. Um, and I and I would tell the reader not only this couldn't have never happened, but why, and that I would explain then to the reader why this is probably what did happen and how that story may have come about. So time and again, and I don't I don't bog down the reader in you know some type of pontificating lesson in mafia, you know how I know you you know this other guy did. I just basically just keep it moving. It's an entertaining read. The blood and guts are there. But now and then I break off and I want to explain to the reader so the reader understands how I'm thinking. And gets to think like I do. So the reader then will spot when they pick up another book, this can't be true. I read Ferrante's book. And Ferrante explained to me why this is BS. And, and now it makes sense to me. So time and again, I did that. And I felt like I nailed it. And when you read it, you'll see. I mean, there are a lot of instances where I'll tell you what really did happen. And sometimes I tap people. Volume one, everyone's dead. But volume two and three, I was able to tap, I was able to tap rather, first-hand participants or people with you know who are privy to the crimes with first-hand knowledge and at times i was able to say hey you were involved in this give me give me the skinny what happens here give me the lowdown and they would say louis okay i'm off record right of course you know me and they trust me because they know i never ratted if i tell you you know if i tell you this dies with me it goes to the grave with me that's where it's going so you know that's that was my that was my benefit the benefit i had 
where people, these people won't talk to a regular writer. Regular journalist calls these guys, they'll hang up and want to kill them. They'll say, what are you kidding me? I'll come right now, break your neck. How'd you get my phone number? With me, they go, Louie, let's meet up at the store. Let's, you know, I, I'll tell you whatever you want to know. So I was able to actually get a lot into a little in volume two and more so in volume three with first-hand participants who gave me the lowdown of what exactly happened. Um, a question from the audience. Do you do volunteer work in U.S. prisons? Your criminal life started as a teenager. Looking back, what did you wish you had early on that could have started uh, your reading at, and writing earlier? And according to Wikipedia, I was credited with a big historic heist. What made you exceptional at that? And then I have another question. So I, I'll stop with that. Yeah, that's okay. Until you can, yeah, and then let you catch up. Let me try to read. Yeah, I'll try to remember all the parts in that and just go back to the first one. I always wanted to volunteer in U.S. prisons. Um, the U.S. prison system is despicable. And we do not, We do, first of all, I'm, I'm not one of those you know people who go, nobody belongs in prison. There are a lot of people who belong in prison. I belonged in prison. So let me start with that. I definitely belonged in prison, and a lot of people do. Having said that, the prisons could be better. They could be more geared towards correcting people and helping them to figure out their lives and, and getting on a better path, and they don't. They usually make them worse. Um, there are very, very few instances where people come out better. I thank God I'm one of those, um, but a lot of people come out worse. I had a friend who just got out. I stuck with him all these years. He got out after 28 years. He, he was out too. He got back. He's back in already. He'll probably now serve the rest of his life. That's very sad. But the U.S. prisons are so haughty and overconfident that any time I used to call them, whether federal, state, local, no one wanted to bother with me. I'd say, can I come in? I'll come in for free. I just want to help these inmates. I just want to put them on the right path. I just want to teach them how important it is to read and how, to, how that will help them to educate themselves. And one day they'll come back to you and you'll have that foundation. And they never wanted me in there. Unlike the United Kingdom, which I had mentioned earlier in our talk, they were more than happy to bring me around to as many prisons as they could. And then they gave me an award at number 10 Downing Street for my work with prisoners, you know, or in part for my work with prisoners. So the United States needs a rude awakening. They can't just keep putting people away like cattle and expecting anything to, you know, anything to change. The rate of recidivism speaks to that. The, you know, people keep going back and there's a reason for it. The other thing, too, is we don't distinguish between mentally ill people. Um, there's a judge I know. Uh, her name is Erica Quartermain. She's a brilliant young woman uh, who's desperately trying to figure out how to distinguish between con uh, convicts or people destined for prison who have mental illnesses. Um, the entire prison is you know, sort of like a low, medium to high rate asylum where people are suffering from all kinds of uh, um, uh, mental diseases, mental illnesses. But she wants to put people who have a severe mental illness in somewhere where they can get help. We don't do that. We usually just lock everybody up together. I mean, unless they're banging their head against the wall. And usually the first thing is we put them in a padded room. Even then, we don't typically start try to find help for them. So that's, that's the first part of that. I've been shut down by U.S. prisons to my dismay um, and, and to, their, to their utter dismay, too, and to, and to their shame. The U.K. has done much better with me. I've so, also been tapped by Scandinavian countries to help them with their prisons, and I've done that as well. Go ahead, Mark. I'm sorry. And that's right. The second part of that was, do you think if you would have been reading earlier, if you would have applied yourself more academically, would your life have been different? 
Yes and no. I wish someone put a book in my hands when I was young, but I was a wild kid. I, you know, I cheated my way through school. Um, I was literate. I just never read a book cover to cover. You know, everything was everything was a everything was a con. You know, how do I how do I get by? And I, you know, I skated by with C's and D's. You know, just enough, and then you know, just enough to graduate high school to make my mother. You know, when my mother said, "Please, my brother was a high school dropout." You know, we had dropouts in the family. She didn't want me to be a dropout. She wanted me to go to college. And after high school, I said, Ma, that's it. I love you. I graduated high school. I can't go to college. I hate school. Uh, I was already hijacking trucks. I had a, I had a stolen car ring. I had a chop stop. Um, and I was doing all this. You know, I mean, I had, look, I had, to some, to some extent, I had a dysfunctional family life. But to also, to, to my parents, um, other, other praise, they, they really, really did instill a lot of love and, and moral compass inside me. I went off the tracks. I went my own way. Years later, I was in a prison cell. My mother died in my arms. And after she died in my arms, I didn't believe anything she might have taught me. I, I had no respect for anyway because I felt like if there was a God and she taught me good things, what good is this now? She died with lumps coming out of, the, you know, out of her head the size of softballs, cancer lumps. So I said, this, this, isn't, this isn't really, this isn't a just world. So I became more unjust in my own world, um, and I didn't care if I, you know, I traumatized people or whatever I did. So I went off the deep end. But my mother's lessons came back to me years later in a prison cell, and that helped me come around. I felt bad for prisoners who didn't have that initial foundation that my mother gave me from when I was young, because they maybe were abused from when they were young. They, you know, they were tossed out into the street. They were raised in homes, and they never had that foundation that I had. That I could say, hey, wait a second, I was taught better. I don't belong in this place. You know, I gave that a thought when I was in solitary confinement once. And I said, well, how the hell did I end up here? You know, my, my mother didn't raise me to be like this, to stick guns in people's mouths. This wasn't. And then wait a second, too, to be more clear, to be absolutely categorically clear. My mother came from a family of criminals, but she wasn't like that. You know, my uncle was a hijacker, did time in Sing Sing, her brother. You know, before I was, you know, born, he was doing time. And while I was young, I used to go visit him in Sing Sing. I remember my feet didn't even touch the floor when I was sitting in the visiting room. I was so little. You know, I mean, so I grew up in prisons, too. So we had that. But my mother definitely instilled in me, you know, more compass. You know, you don't don't go, don't sway. You know, do, do the right thing. You couldn't even not hold the door for somebody in front of my mother's presence. She would scream at me, go hold the door and apologize to that lady for not holding the door for her. You know, my mother was 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 right. But once he died, it was over. You know, I just didn't care. So a um, question from the audience. And you answered for this for me a long time ago. Do you think the film The Godfather is close to the reality of mafia? It is believed that The Godfather and his role was a metaphor used by Francis Co uh, Ford Capella for U.S. Uh, cooperations and how they were operating. Yeah. I, I think, uh, so what was the second part of that? How, uh, so they were asking, was, was it a metaphor used by Francis Ford Coppola for U.S. Uh, cooperation? I think she meant U.S. corporations. Oh, corporations. And, oh, and right. how they were operating. What do you think? Okay, that's where I lost you. Yes, corporations. I would think that corporations are more, well, first of all, corporations today are more like the mafia in The Godfather than, than the mafia is today. I mean, well, first of all, let me let me let me rewind that statement. The first part of it is is the old timers that raised me in the life. Old time gangsters were much more reserved, much more conservative in their thinking and their and their and their. They were less showy. 
they were more they were more so you know be quiet um don't let everybody know your business um you can't tell everybody they would more so try to make peace before you know right now everything's go to violence or for a long time it was things are winding down a little better now but for a long time it was everything was go right to violence the old timers weren't like that so there, there is a sense of the godfather they had a lot more respect for each other the old timers did it was a different world but we see that degradation even in american society which which really runs parallel to mafia society where you know things have degenerated you know just in general um but but having said that the metaphor part I do believe that, um, for example, there was Sal Abellino who used to run all the garbage on Long Island. He was a reputed captain in the Lucchese crime family and also a friend of mine, and I did time with him. Sal Abellino was the nicest guy in the world. Did he have a mafia cartel on the garbage? Yes and no. He controlled the garbage on Long Island, but he let all of the mom-and-pop garbage companies operate within his umbrella. They just couldn't try to like undercut other companies and try to steal uh, uh, customers away from other people and they had territories. Is this is your territory? Don't stray over into someone else's territory. If this is what the prices is, the pricing is, there was a price cartel. These are what the prices are. Don't undercut people and put other people out of business. So everybody was allowed to operate under Avellino. Now, these big companies, and I don't know if I could say them on your show, but these big companies, these big monopolistic companies have come in, bought up all of these other little companies and now if you're a mom and pop company who has like three or four trucks and you want to compete, they crush you in three minutes and you can't make a living. So who's more of a mafia to you? Sal Avellino or the big monopolistic company that says you're not allowed to have a small company? Sal let all these mom and pop companies survive. They just couldn't step on other people's feet and it was beneficial to everybody. Now, I'm not glorifying what Sal did. He did bad things as well. He was a mobster. There was violence involved if there had to be. I'm not justifying anything he did. I am saying that he did allow people to coexist. And a lot of people put their kids through college with those little companies. And now what are they doing? Nothing. Because those companies don't exist anymore. The big, big monopolistic companies, which are more like a corporation slash Francis Ford Coppola movie mafia, they put everybody out of business. Those uh, are the real gangsters, I feel. Um at one point, the American mafia touched and controlled many of the major industries. How much power do they wield now? And what's the level of talent of the leaders? They're losing a lot of what they had. While I was in prison in the 90s, a lot of people were being locked up. For example, uh, I think I could say his name. He passed away. Anthony Calagna was a big union head. Anthony Calagna was a gem of a man. And he ran one of the, he ran big, big union. And he did very, very big negotiations and he fought for the workers. Uh, but he was mob. That union's gone. Uh, all of the, a lot of the garment industry unions are gone. Um, they've lost a lot and they lost it through a lot of treachery, violence, and turncoats. And, it, you know, Sandy the Bull Gravano is a perfect example. He tells you how he killed this one, killed that one, killed this one, killed that one, and took over their union influence one after another. But once you kill them all, all those established relationships that took years and decades to establish are gone, and here comes Sammy the Bull. Hello, here I am. I'm, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. I want you to do that. And nobody wants, you know, things don't go smooth like that. And then he becomes a rat, rats everybody out, and gives up all the unions that yeah. he took over, too. There was a guy, Sasso, I was in jail with. Sasso ran one of the unions he took over. So Sammy takes over. Sasso would have did that for the rest of his life with the mob. Sammy kills the guy Sasso used to work with. Then Sasso takes over, and then Sammy wraps out Sasso. So this is like today's mob. 
So all of those things they lost. You know, they all of those footholds they had in these big industries they've lost. And the government has come down. Giuliani did a phenomenal job in New York for chasing the mob out of a lot of industries. But he replaced them with a lot of monopolies that are as bad as mobsters. They don't let anybody else survive. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, you could argue and say, well, it's better than having a mob guy. Maybe, maybe. But, it, it, you know, it's also too. Some people might look at it as, you know, just about just about equal. Um, but anyway, yes, they've lost a big foothold in a lot of the industries. They're scrambling now for what they have left. There's a lot of gambling still, a lot of loan shocking, but they've lost a big foothold in a lot of the garment, you know, the garment industries, the big unions, the construction. And they still have a, they still have a lot of construction, but not but not to the extent that they have. They had the concrete. There wasn't an ounce of concrete poured in New York without the mob's approval. That's dumb. That's funny uh, that you mentioned that because in The Sopranos there was an episode where they were trying to shake uh, down um, Starbucks. And the guy was like, I really can't help you because we only take credit card and we have very little cash. The money is sent back to corporate. Here, here's the name of somebody at corporate that you can call. And the guys walked out of there like, what kind of world is this that you can't shake down uh, these, you know, a coffee shop for God's sakes? What's going to happen to the way we make a living? I thought it was hysterical. And they just like were dumbfounded by the whole thing. Um, a question from the audience. Why so much international names and exposure versus the United States? Why did you get so much exposure and people utilizing your uh, experience internationally as opposed to more of it being used in the United States? Um, you mean as far as my books? I think government. I mean, it seems that uh, Great Britain really utilized uh, your oh, past that, experiences. Yeah. yeah, I believe that part of that is that, you know, just, I, I think we have this, you know, American superiority complex. I think that's part of it. When you con- when I contact the prisons once again, we don't need your help. We know how to run a prison. You're just an ex-convict. Where the, the, the Brits were able to say, hey, wait a second, you're an ex-convict. You're the perfect guy who we want to talk to. And we want to, you know, bounce some things off of and we want you to explain to us what could be better. So it's just an outlook. The American outlook, I feel like, um, is is much too uh, condescending when I contact them. I've been hung up on. Here I am volunteering to come into a prison and nobody wants to talk to me. You know, it gets frustrating after a while. And then I have the Scandinavian prisons calling me left and right going, please talk to us. You know, you become ashamed of your own country at some point. You say, can't, they, can't we, can't we, don't we want to help our own prisoners? We lock up, we only have 5% of the world's population and we lock up over 25% of the world's prisoners and we don't see anything wrong with that and we don't want to do something to help them while they're in there? This is crazy. So, you know, I think that the international community has more of a, more of a, like an inquisitive mind as far as like, well, who is this guy? And then probably think we are from the superior America. So maybe me coming from America, they say, well, maybe he's an ex-con, but he's an ex-con from America. Maybe he could help us. Uh, whatever the case is, I'm not exactly sure. I've never given that any really, really deep thought, but it is an excellent question. Um, the other thing too is like, I, you know, I, I, I heard a girl say one time, she said to, to, to me, um, she goes, you know, I'm, I'm Egyptian and I'm Egyptian in New York. And nobody cares if I'm an Egyptian in New York. You know, what are you, a cabbie? You're, you know, you sell hot dogs. Yeah. But she goes, I moved to Pennsylvania and I was an exotic person. Like, you know, I was all of a sudden, everybody wanted to talk to me. You know, so it, sometimes it depends on where you are. 
mobsters are a dime a dozen here in the United States and in New York. So, you know, maybe the international community then when sifting through which mobster they want to talk to, I'm flattered that they choose me and they call me. Uh, I've consulted with commando units, with police forces all over the globe. You know, so I'm always flattered. South and Central America, I've talked to, to, to commando units there. Um, I've helped so many people. Um, you know, and even today, most of I have ex-mob friends. I have also have ex-FBI agent friends, ex-CIA agent friends. You know, so I have like a lot of, you know, huge uh, sort of like network I could tap if I wanted to ask a question, which is always helpful as well. Um, you wrote uh, that the you wrote that the mafia started in Sicily around the beginning of the Civil War, and that Sicilian mob families were related because of intermarriage. What effect did that have on the future of the mafia? Uh, when I was when I was running around on the streets in my time, there was a lot of guys who were uh, who were connected by by blood by marriage, and I never put any deep thought into it. I just figured, you know, a cousin brings a cousin in, brother brings a cousin in, the cousin brings a brother in, etc. Family business. Yeah, uncles bring nephews in. Uh, one of my dearest friends to this day is in jail. His uncle was a wise guy. His cousin was a wise guy. His grandfather was a wise guy. And the grandfather went all the way back to Castamalisi Custom, uh, del Garfo. And he was a Bonanno family member. So they go all the way back to Sicily together, these families, and they came here together. And then the offspring are all involved in the mob. So I didn't put all of those pieces together until I was doing research for this book. And I started to realize, well, wait a second, the mafia would normally begin in a town in Sicily or a village where the patriarchy was a big deal. You know, the, the highest ranking male of a family was the boss. And then the family started to, you know, people who worked for them started to become part of the quote unquote family. And then they started to extend into this sort of non-blood relations family. And that was also mirrored on feudalism, uh, which, I, which I point out in the, in the book as yeah. well. Um, and I went deep into feudalism. Nobody ever, nobody's ever gone that deep into it. Uh, most people just touch on it and say, well, the mafia might be grounded in feudalism. I went deep into as to why and how. And, and, and I thought I, I really thought I nailed that as well. But uh, the, the, mob, the relationships that I was seeing around me, I never put any deep thought into it. Now I realize that the, each mafia family started out as a real family, a real blood family, then extends into non-blood relations and grows bigger and bigger and bigger. And those blood relations within the, the extended family continue to prosper and continue to bear fruit. And those are the people I was – look, I was, there wasn't one Gotti. Everybody knows John Gotti. Everybody says, oh, John Gotti was the big boss of the mafia, the big 20th century mafia don. There was Peter Gotti, Vinny Gotti, Richie Gotti, Joey Gotti. There was a million Gottis. You know, these are all – and they were all involved in that life. Um, the same thing with Chin Giganti, the guy who used to walk the streets with a bathrobe and talk to parking meters, feigning lunacy so the FBI wouldn't put him away. There was there, – he had, he had brothers, Chin Giganti, Mario, Ralph. There was a huge family, the Gigantes, behind the scenes. They were all blood relations. So, you know, now he's got a son. He's got a nephew. He's got these people, you know, it's, if it's good, the family business, they stay in it. Sometimes, though, the mob guys would chase their sons. They would steer their sons away. The Jews did that when the Jews uh, left the mob. The Jews were very powerful from, like, the 20s and 30s up until the 60s. And they were gangsters right alongside the Italians, did everything with them. And I point that out at the, uh, at the inside Borgata as well. 
the, the relationship the Italians and Jews had. And at some point or another, the Jews around the 1960s started getting, there was less and less institutional discrimination against the Jews, and they were allowed to they were allowed to go higher and higher in the business world. And as that, as this discrimination rescinded, they started to teach, they tell their sons, go to school, go to college. We want you in the corner office. We don't want you in the gutter. We want you up there at the top of the skyscraper in the corner office. We don't need you down here with blood and blood and guts in the gutter. So the Jews steered their sons away from that. The Italians, for the most part, did both. Some steered their sons away from it and gave them a better a better education and pushed them into legitimate industry. And some WASP, you know, uh, semi-legitimate businesses became completely legitimate businesses under the children and grandchildren. And then some brought their kids into the life. If the life was good for them, they were powerful in, in, in the in the uh, in the family. They wanted their kids. Sometimes too, I know one I know a gangster from Little Italy, Manhattan's Little Italy who brought his son in because he owned restaurants and he had millions and millions of dollars on the street. And he knew if his son wasn't a wise guy, that he would be stripped of that if anything ever happened to him. Because the, the, the piranhas would come out of the, the, come out of the, the Amazon, uh, the Amazon River, and yeah. start eating him alive. And he knew that. So he knew he had to straighten out his son, bring him into the life, so he could inherit the millions of, uh, that he had on loan, on loan shark money loans on the street. And the restaurants he had, and the and, and the um, positions he had with oil companies, etc. So that was a strategic re- reason to bring his son in. Let me ask you: In 2023, when women are playing leading roles in business and entrepreneurship, what role do they play, and can they uh, and can they be made? A woman, a woman cannot be made in the United States, as I understand it. Italy has different rules. Um, in my series for Discovery Channel. I did go to Naples, Italy, and I I, I was embedded with the Camorra, uh, and I really, really got to know them well, and more so off camera, because a lot of the private things they were able to tell me off camera, we could obviously only put so much on camera. Some things they told me, we can't have this on camera. But as I understood it, in Italy, women can become bosses. Women can become sort of active members. Uh, there was a couple of women who lost husbands uh, to a rival mob boss. And the woman then took over the fam- the father, the uh, husband's um, interests, and just continued to run the crew as her husband once did. I that is unheard of in the United States. Um, you know, I don't why I don't know. Are we are we uh, uh, misogynistic? Misogynistic? I don't know. I don't know why. Uh, you know, I I have no. Yeah, I'm not yeah, sure why. That's, that's kind of surprising. Not. You would think Italy would not be progressive. You know, old school, yeah. and you would think the United States would be more progressive, and it's just the opposite. Um, you mentioned Amarta, Code of Silence. You write has a deeper meaning. What is the deeper meaning of Amarta? Yeah, most people hear the word Amarta today, and they say, well, it's the Code of Silence, and that's it, meaning if you know something, keep your mouth shut. When the police come to your door, bang on your door and ask about your neighbor, just keep your mouth shut. And that is part of Amarta. But the larger reason for Omerta and the, the, the original meaning of the word, when I, and I traced it back to its origins, was to be a man in every which way. And that's something that um, was very important. Be a man. Be responsible for your actions. In other words, when a rat gets caught, why go to the pen when you could send a friend? He's not, he's not a, you know, Sammy the Bull did not man up. He did not take responsibility for his own actions. He blamed John Gotti. He blamed the rest of the mob. He blamed the case against him. He blamed everything. 
He's not living up to Omerta. He may say he's Omerta. He may say he's being a man. To us, he's not being a man. Being a man is living up to your responsibilities. So, for example, I do mention there was an Italian Don, a mafia Don in Sicily, who was being tried in, in the maxi trials in Italy, where they tried like hundreds of gangsters at once. And during these maxi trials that took place in the 1980s and maybe into the 90s, he had a he had a snitch, a pentito, against him. And the snitch said, you were killing this guy, that guy, this guy, this guy. You were a brutal, savage murderer. And he saw nothing wrong with all those killings because he was being a man in his mind. Those people needed to die. And he rose to the occasion like a man would in his mind and killed them. But he challenged the pentito or rat or snitch and said to him, you shouldn't talk about anybody because you never took care of your own wife. So in his eyes, by him not taking care of his own wife and failing in marital duties was not being a man. So this is the definition of Omerta. The Sicilian guy felt like he was living up to Omerta by killing people, but he felt like the snitch never lived up to Omerta, not only by snitching, but not even taking care of his own wife. What kind of man doesn't support his own wife? What kind of man doesn't take care of his wife and make sure she has everything she needs? What kind of man sleeps out all over the place? We played cards with a guy. It was okay to have a girlfriend or a gumada, we used to say. You got a gumada. That's okay. You got a gumada, a girlfriend on the side. But make sure you go home to your wife. You can't sleep out with your girlfriend every night. You have to go home to your wife. You have to care for her. You're allowed to have, you're allowed to stop by a house, but you better leave by 9, 10 o'clock and go home, put your wife to bed. So that was the way we looked at things back then. And that goes all back to Omerta. This was these these were sort of the 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 rules, uh, unwritten rules of how to be a man. Accept responsibility for your actions. If somebody wrongs you, you don't go to the police. You take care of it yourself. A real man doesn't call nine one one. Help me! Help me! Help me! Someone just stole something from my house. Please come help me. In in the old version of Omerta. A real man would say, somebody stole something from my house. Tomorrow I will find him and I will chop his head off and take back what he stole. That was the real, the original Omerta. You know, and that's how we lived when we were kids. Somebody robbed our house. You have to deal with us. Don't worry about the NYPD. We're coming for you. Um, I interviewed Joe Pistone, who became, uh, who was uh, Donnie Brasco. And he said the biggest regret he ever had was that he was not a made man just before they were going to make him. The FBI pulled him out. And he said, that's the biggest regret of his life. And he said, it was very hard being under for so long because you're at people's weddings and funerals and christenings and everything. And you really do grow an attachment uh, to these people, even as you're trying to convict them. You were never made a made guy yourself. How hard is that to become a made guy? Well, I was, I was going to, before I went away, I was, you know, me and my dear friend were, you know, up for, up for the button. And yeah. when I came home, by the time I had come home from prison, it was, it was obviously, um, you know, monkey wrenched when I went away. And then when I came home from prison, I just did eight and a half years. I kept my mouth shut. I faced life. And my friend said, come on, I'll put you up, meaning for my button. I turned it down. By the grace of God, I said, I don't want it. I said, first of all, I'm a Jew. I converted to Judaism when I was in jail. So I said, that's number one. Wait, wait till they hear that. And second of all, I'm a bookworm. You know, here I am. I'm knocking out, you know, the, the works of, uh, uh, you know, Carlisle's works and, 
uh, Nietzsche, and and I, you know, I'm reading. I'm, I don't I don't read a book. I read all the complete works when I read something. I had no interest in that. So yes, it was offered to me, and I turned it down. Um, so how easy was how hard or easy was it? I guess if you follow the natural progression, is which is what I did. I hijacked trucks. I kept my word. I loaned shark money. I dealt with other people. I never had anybody say anything wrong about me. Then I went to jail. I faced life. I never talked. I never snitched. Anybody stepped to me in jail, I never backed up an inch. You want to fight? My fists go up. You want to grab a knife? I got a bigger knife. Whatever you want to do. I was never going to back down to anybody. So everybody knew I had a good reputation on the street and in prison. So here I am. I'm, you know, when I come home from jail, I'm a, you know, a first-round draft pick. You know, this is like a guy you want. You could trust him. He, he's ready to go to jail. He's done everything. And, you know, I still have friends now that get straightened out. That would put me up in a minute, even after all the stuff I've done. You know, I mean, if I was willing to go that route, which I'm not. Um, but, yeah, and Pistone, there's a little more with the Pistone thing. Pistone did an incredible thing, by the way, from a law enforcement point of view, not from a mobster's point of view, obviously. Mobsters don't like him. But from a law enforcement point of view and as an average citizen – I have to say, he had big, big, big coyones. You know, he, mm. he put them up. He went undercover. He did all that. Um, it's, I don't believe he would have gotten straightened out in the end because Joe Messino was the boss at the, at the time. And Joe Messino made the final decision as to who got made and who didn't. And Sonny Black, who was Joe Pistone's sort of like skipper, capo, Sonny Black may have wanted to straighten him out, but Joe Messino would have knocked it down. Joe Messino did not like... Uh, Joe Pistone, he had a bad feeling about Donnie Brasco. So in the end, you know, technically he would have been put up. He probably could have gotten made, maybe who knows, but I don't believe Joe Messino would have pulled the trigger on it. I don't think he would have made him. Now, when I came home, Joe Messino was going bad, just to show you how the mob flipped around. And Joe Messino would have been my boss at one time because I was when I was away, I the banana the bananas did a favor for me. And I was pulled over from the Gambinos over to the bananas, which is another long story. I won't get into now, but um, so Joe Messino would have been my boss had I gone back to that life, and Joe Messino became a rat, so I would have been back, and I would have been in prison right now instead of talking to you here. Um, in the book, you mentioned Jewish gangsters and the cooperation between Jewish gangsters and Italian ones in forming the commission. According to your book, still these household names like Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky were tutored by a famous gambler in American history, Arnold Rothstein, which there have been many movies made about all these guys. Uh, can you tell about Rothstein and what made him a good tutor and leader for Luciano and Lansky? And, and they kind of broke, uh, you know, they were able to put two different cultures together that typically weren't together, uh, working together. Yeah, uh, great question. I I was I was absolutely enamored by Rothstein. And you know, you read a lot of things. He was the mafia's tutor, he was the mentor to so many mobsters. And you wonder if it's true. And when I started doing all my research, I realized that the mobsters themselves, time and again, complimented Rothstein for teaching them this or teaching them that. And they all had sort of like went in and out of his little sphere at one time or another and learn something that they carried on with that. And all of the biggest mobsters in the early 20th century, Lucky Luciano, Frank Costello, Maya Lansky, were all tutored by Rothstein. And Luciano, who was sort of not only the head of his own 
Borgata, but also, too, he was sort of the creator of the five families when they first came about uh, in, in, the, in the early 1930s. Luciano says, this Rothstein was the guy who taught me everything I knew. first guy who gave me a chance, invested in me. Rothstein taught them here. Here's, here are all you guys. You're all, you're all uh, newly arrived immigrants, as Luciano and Lansky were. They came as kids. They were newly arrived immigrants. You're in a melting pot. Get along with everybody. Don't discriminate against anybody. Don't think you're better than anybody. Get along with everybody and also operate in bigger circles. He wanted them to go where the money was. Don't be down here on the street selling nickel and dime bags. Go up there and deal with the people at the top and get involved with the biggest rackets. If you're going to do it, do it right. This was Rothstein. And he taught them to, to sort of circulate in bigger circles. And he taught them to keep their word. He says, everything is your word. Rothstein always kept his word. He did everything on a handshake. If you, have, if you borrowed $10 million from Rothstein or he lent you $10 million, you shook hands. That was the end of the deal. I mean, this is, a, this is incredible. You can't find that today. you got to have a battery of attorneys drawing up contracts for, 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 for $100, for $1,000, let alone millions. So this was Rothstein, what he taught them. The other thing was that, that I really, really admired about Rothstein is Rothstein got involved with prohibition, bootlegging, and he brought in, he, he thought that all this bootlegging and making all this like uh, homemade brew in the bathtubs and stuff and moonshine. And he thought that was all like inferior stuff. He brought in Scots from the Scottish Highlands. I mean, this is incredible. This guy had, a, he's got a, he's working with a, 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 a what do you call it? The, the distillery in Scotland to bring the Scots over and, and the best whiskey selling on the streets of New York through Lucky Luciana. But once bootlegging got too violent, Rothstein bowed out. Once he was involved in the garment industry, once the garment wars, the, the, the labor wars got too violent, he bowed out. So he would get in in the beginning, make his money, and then once it got too violent, he was always saying to himself, you know what, do I need this? Do I want to be involved in all this violence? And, you know, the obviously the, the irony is, is that he died from a gunshot wound, which is, which is a shame because he was not a violent man. But the people he tutored were ready to be violent. And I made that point clear. They were sort of raised in the ghetto where Rothstein was raised with a bit of like an upper class, uh, a higher, an upper yes. class, a middle upper class background. And his father was 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 their successful um, entrepreneur. And Rothstein had a better upbringing than them. They were ready to go violent, full violent though, his, his protégés. Um, please tell us what you learned about Meyer Lansky, who never saw a day of jail and built Las Vegas. And what made him such a great leader that everyone, everyone respected him? And uh, there's a small piece of trivia that Meyer Lansky's son, Paul, was a West Point grad who retired a full uh, colonel in the Army. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Tommy Lucchese's son, too, went to West Point. And these guys had congressmen at the time. They were able to get the appointments from a congressional person. Um, and they did push their kids to go to, to get a better life, get a better education, do something better. So that's interesting. Uh, but to rewind, Lansky was the type of guy, I have a friend. His name is Dave. And I have another friend who I'm staying with, and he's a great guy, Kevin. And Kevin was just talking about recently with me with, about Dave, and he's investing in a few deals Dave's got going on. And I and he's breaking down the deals, and I said, well, how do you know they're going to be successful? And he said, because if Dave does it, it's not going to fail. As the real, he says, Dave looks at it from every different angle that you could ever imagine. Once he puts his money there, your money's safe. If he puts his own money there, your own money's safe. He's never failed. He looks at every deal from every which angle. 
That was Maya Lansky. If Lansky was doing something, everyone wanted it. And, you know, this is, I'm talking about present day, contemporary times, my friend Dave's real estate. But now, and, and Kevin. But I'm going back now, go back to mob days, where Lansky would say, well, I'm going to build, a, um, I'm building two casinos in Florida, in Broward County. Everybody wanted in. I'm going to Cuba. I got Batista in my pocket. You Anybody wanted in? Everybody wanted in. If Lansky's money's there, then you wanted to put your money there because you knew you couldn't lose with Lansky. The only thing you could, the only way you'd lose your money is if Lansky died and then something went awry. But as long as Lansky was breathing, he wasn't going to let his own investment go down and he protected your, your investment as well. And that's basically how Las Vegas got started. When Bugsy Siegel, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel went to Vegas and he was opening up a, the uh, Flamingo, building it, he originally had a little trouble getting people to believe in him. Once Lansky was on board, the entire mob across the United States wanted in. They didn't want to invest in Siegel. So Siegel, he's a hot-headed guy. He could end up killing somebody on the slot machine floor and, and dumping the guy's body on the roulette wheel. <laughs> we don't need, we're not going to put money in Siegel. But once Lansky said, this is something solid, I'm putting my money here, everyone wanted in. And that's part of why Siegel died, which you have to read my book to, to figure out the rest of it. Yeah, and there's great, there's tons of great stories in there. So let's end with this one. Uh, you were in the Gambino family during uh, the time that Paul Castellano uh, was in charge. Am I correct? No, I came around. I started coming around after John Gotti took over. Uh, okay, so Gotti, but, I, but, I, but Gotti took him out, and everybody knows that story in America. Uh, these yes. men were so totally different. Tell us about them and, and what you learned from their leadership. Castellano was, um, if any of your if any of your, your listeners are familiar with um, sort of the overthrow of the old regimes in Europe, the Habsburgs, uh, yeah. you know, the, the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Kaiser in Germany, the Tsar in Russia. All of these sort of like working, the working class rose up and they wanted to overthrow the old regimes. You know, they wanted to get rid of the old czar, Kaiser, and, and, and replace them, you know, with, with more of like, you know, whether it was Alexander Kerensky in Russia or the Weimar Republic in Germany, which led to dictators in both Russia and Germany. That was the overthrow of Castellano. John Gotti was the working class. He was a hijacker himself. He's scraping the bottom to try to get by. He's running around the streets trying to make a buck any way he can. Then there's Castellano. He's got the meat industry tied up. He's got the uh, the, con the construction industry tied up. He's got the concrete. He's got the rebar. He's got the sheetrock. He's got the he's got chickens. He's got he's got uh, everything you can imagine. He's got tied up. He's got grocery chains. He's got. You name it, he's got it all tied up, and he's not giving any, any of it up. So he's got this army under him, and the army, half the army's starving, and the other half of these rich capos who are around him and his uncle Carlo Gambino. And eventually, these, the, the working class, as they did in Russia, let's say, for example, are going to say, hey, why does the Tsar have everything? Let's rise up and take it. We're starving on the streets over here. And that's what happened with John. It was sort of like a workers' rebellion. That's the best way I could explain it. There's a lot more to it, and you'll read about it in volume two of my book. Mm -hmm. um, the end of volume two covers it thoroughly, and there was a lot of John being pressed into a corner. There was a lot of John having no way out because Castellano wouldn't allow him a way out. 
There was a lot of mistakes made on Castellano's part. But the biggest thing, the underlying reason was greed and, and, and the rich. You know, if the, if the rich in our country, for example, there's a lot of billionaires now. Millionaires are a thing of the past. Now it's billionaires. If the billionaires don't get smart and start realizing that there are a lot of people who are more and more being put on food lines, uh, losing their homes, something has to be done about that if you want a society to succeed and to continue and prosper. And if something isn't done, then unfortunately, history will repeat itself. You know, we'll have a French Revolution here in America or something one day. Lou, I a hundred percent agree with you. I always say uh, when I when I used to work at Wharton, I worked in Latin America, and I said, you know, we're going to have more Venezuelas. I said, if you don't, the the best army for rich people is a big middle class. That's, That's the right. biggest protection of their wealth. Is the bigger the middle class less chance they have of something like that happening. And, and you just see, yeah, they just don't uh, buy, they just don't think about that. Lou, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time. And I'm sorry we couldn't get you on uh, video, but I'm hoping we're going to have you back again um, as you continue to write your books. And uh, there was so much to talk about in your book that we could have spent all day talking about it. But I want to thank you so much and uh, look forward to speaking to you again in the near future. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks for having me. And thank you for all your, your listeners who hung around and listened and hopefully you enjoyed it. And I look forward to coming back, Mark. Thank you. Absolutely. And if you come to Vietnam in the next year, I, you need to look me up. Mark, I may be there. My book is a runaway bestseller in Vietnam, hopefully. Have a great rest of your day and enjoy. You as well. Take care. Take care, everyone. Thank you, Mark. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.